exciting episode of How to Win Friends and Influenza. This is a podcast all about life in medicine across a variety of specialties. I'm your host, Lily. Now, medical school teaches people many, many things, not just how to arrange heavy textbooks in your bag without your bag breaking, a very useful skill, or where to surreptitiously go for sources of free food. A hint there is that Grand Rounds often have catering. But it teaches you a lot of other things. For example, you might not have known that the thyroid gland existed before entering this sacred haven of the wizarding world. I mean, medicine. But of course, by the end of it, the thyroid gland, all its pathologies and you will be best friends. Now, for some reason, one of the most remarkable things that I ever came across in Hogwarts, I mean, in medical school, years ago was this, that kidneys are kidney-shaped. I say remarkable because it stayed with me ever since then, even though it's understandably never once been useful in an examination or a clinical situation. But still, with that very promising introduction out of the way, let's talk about kidneys, which are indeed kidney-shaped. And let's discuss that with the very lovely, very interesting, and very human-shaped Dr. Lucy. Welcome on the show. Hi, how's it going? Great, and we're so happy to have you on the show. Thanks so, for having me. <laughs> yeah, Dr. Lucy, you're a renal physician. I am. So how is it that two little organs like that can create so much havoc that an entire medical specialty has to be formed from it? <laughs> They're far-reaching. They do all sorts of things that most people don't realise. <laughs> yeah, and so what sorts of pathologies would you look at in a typical day? Ah, well, I do mainly outpatient medicine at the moment. Um, so it's a little bit different to what you see in the hospitals. I see lots and lots of patients with chronic kidney disease and the commonest cause of which, of course, is hypertension and then diabetes and then glomerulonephritides. So um, I see a lot of proteinuria, a lot of microscopic hematuria, a lot of hypertension. I end up managing a lot of diabetes despite being a renal physician. Um, and in fact, I end up seeing a lot of just chronic disease. So most of my patients have got a list of comorbidities, so heart failure or they've had ischemic heart disease or strokes or peripheral vascular disease or any of the complications of diabetes or long-standing chronic kidney disease. So a lot of different things, a lot of social issues. Um, I have dialysis patients as well, so um, they are, present a much more complicated um often social and I guess the biopsychosocial model comes into play more with the complex dialysis patients. So all sorts of things. So lots of awesome keywords there, biopsychosocial. <laughs> yeah, did you like how I dropped that into Yeah, the only thing that wasn't there was multidisciplinary. Right, yeah, well, unfortunately, it's just one of me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but you, you raise a really interesting point. There's a lot of crossover into other um, specialties and areas of medicine like endocrinology. Uh -huh. So, for example, if someone comes in to the orthopedic surgeon with a fracture, that fracture might be the only thing that's wrong with them. Yeah. In renal medicine, does it tend to be just kidneys or does it tend more to be kidneys plus? Obviously? Oh, it's always everything. So anyone who's done a renal term will know that any renal patient comes in to hospital under renal, no matter what's wrong with them. So even if they've had a stroke, they'll go to the stroke unit for two days and then they'll come back out under renal. So we end up managing our long-term kidney patients and dialysis patients and transplant patients for their infections, their pneumonias, their lung disease, their heart failure, their ischemic heart disease once the cardiologists have had them for 48 hours and done the angio, um, their peripheral vascular disease, their skin problems, their social problems. Their, it's, it's general medicine. Um, oh. it's, it's definitely general medicine with a renal flavour. Okay, yeah. <laughs> And is it common to have just kidney, like acute kidney injury and nothing else? Um, that's certainly a small portion of what I do in the outpatient setting. It's a, probably a more, uh, there's probably more representation in the inpatient setting of acute kidney injury. I wouldn't say it's a large part of uh, renal medicine, but it's certainly there. Uh, and yes, if you have a young person come in with an acute kidney injury, that may be their only comorbidity, but... To get acute kidney injury, you're usually sick from something else. So it's pretty unusual to only have acute kidney injury and that be it. Okay. Um, I mean, I guess the exception to that is patients who come in with acute sepsis or rhabdomyolysis. Um, that's about all I can think of for single issue acute kidney injury. <laughs> okay. So, they, yeah, they're, they're multi-morbid patients. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, I suppose not cool, but it is an interesting <laughs> facet of his specialty compared to some other specialties. Sorry, not sorry. Cool, not cool. <laughs> That's right. You get me. Okay, so we tend to associate chronic kidney disease with perhaps older people, mm-hmm. um, but what is, in reality, what is the patient pool that you could be looking at across inpatients and outpatients, hospital and outpatients? Is it, is it any range? Oh, it's any range. Um, it is predominantly older patients, but you'll find that in any specialty that has um, covers a chronic disease because of the aging population, people are living longer, particularly around... Um, the inner city Sydney areas they are much older more rural, regional you'll find much younger populations of course obviously in the indigenous populations they present much younger Um, but I mean I still have 20 year olds with funny electrolyte problems and 30 year olds with glomerulonephritis and 35 year olds with transplants and 40 year olds with IgM nephropathy or polycystic kidney disease who are sort of hanging in there trying to keep them off dialysis I've got 50 and 60 year olds transitioning to dialysis and working up for a transplant and I've got <clears throat> 70 to 99 year olds who've wow. got anything in between <laughs> yeah. okay wow yeah, so, so quite quite a span. Range. Yeah, yeah yeah if I'm honest predominantly I would say they're mainly over 70 okay and what is it like interacting with those patients? For example, are they full of amazing wisdom? Do they look at life in a very different way from people who are much younger and have different expectations? Um, hmm, that's a tricky question. Or are they old and cranky? <laughs> you can say the truth. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're not old and cranky. I find patients on the whole very grateful. So they're coming to you because they're worried about something. and. I do my best to say, well, here's what we think it might be, here's what we're going to do about it, and make them feel less worried. So patients often, usually, hopefully, leave happy and grateful for what you've done with them. And even if you get a patient that comes in cranky, I find that cranky is just a manifestation of worried so if I have a patient that comes in and they're yelling at me straight off the bat and we've only just met, <laughs> I think this isn't about me, <laughs> this is about you. And so I try to get to the bottom of why they're cranky and not taking it personally takes a few years, but, <laughs> but you get to a point where you realise that it's about getting to the bottom of why they're cranky, helping them with that problem and then you come away knowing that Next time you see them, they won't be cranky with you. <laughs> so I guess that's a marker of a good position. You can see through inside someone's soul and get to the heart of their problem and get to the kidney of their problem. I don't know about that. But <laughs> just recognising that yeah. people react differently when they're stressed. Some yeah. get quiet, some get denial, some get... You guys do those workshops where you've got to deal with bad news, mm-hmm. watch patients deal with yeah. bad news. Some pa- patients get angry, some people get worried and ring you every five seconds and ultimately you approach that person differently but the ultimate outcome will be the same Um, and you can nine times out of ten make the really angry person smile (laughs) excellent that's a a very good skill to have okay and are there any challenges um, from dealing with the older population versus the younger population definitely the um older population it's I guess it's um, got the geriatric issues so polypharmacy is a big one polypharmacy is certainly a big one carers these people you're not seeing one person you're seeing two they come with their daughter son Mm -hmm. wife grandchild sometimes depending on backgrounds they come with seven people Um, (laughs) an entourage And you, so you're ending up dealing with the anxieties of all of those people. So I guess that's different to dealing with just one person. But at the same time, you know, if you make them part of the team, all those family members can be extremely helpful. Um, some of my patients have mobility issues. Getting them up onto the bed to examine them is harder. So, uh, you know, the physician's exam teaches you that you must lay them on the bed, partly exposed, 45 degrees. <laughs> you know what, if they're 90 and I've come in a wheelchair, that ain't happening. (laughs) So I get down on my knees and I examine them whilst in the chair. And so, you know, you work around things like that, but that's definitely an issue of having older patients. 
Yeah, so a little bit of flexibility there. Yeah, of course, yeah. yeah. Okay. And are the therapeutic aims ever different? Or is it, um, is it maybe more of a focus on um, quality of life versus quantity of life or, yeah, or something like that? Yeah, so renal medicine in the last 10, 15 years has sort of had a whole new subspecialty branch off called renal supportive care. Okay. So in the 50s when dialysis was first invented... You had to be rich or famous to get dialysis. And then, you know, by the 90s, everyone could have dialysis. And now, um, there was a renal physician I used to work with that used to say if they want dialysis and they need dialysis, they should have dialysis. And now we think, well, if you're over 75 and you've got a background of skin cart disease or other cardiac problems... There is some evidence to show that you may not necessarily live longer with dialysis. Okay. So then it becomes a quality of life question. So we send people for extensive dialysis education and then they decide if doing peritoneal dialysis or hemodialysis three times a week is a better quality of life than treat just medical treatment for the symptoms. Mm-hmm. And so for the older population over 75, it's much more of a focus on quality of life when choosing a treatment modality um, and um, I guess that's the main shift but also if I get a patient who's got a GFR of 20 and they're 85 I control their blood pressure but I don't get it really really tight um, because they might fall over mm, <laughs> they get true. dizzy yeah. whereas if I've got a 30 year old with a GFR of 20 I'm trying to squeeze out every 6 month period I can get before they're headed to dialysis so that blood pressure is tightly controlled more medication, more checks so yeah, definitely a different approach yeah. and you raised a really interesting point before which is that patients are often actually just really happy to be treated to have their issues addressed. Now, kidneys are interesting organs because they're the kind that you really, I think, take for granted. You don't really notice them until something goes wrong. So it's, right. not, yeah. it's not like being in trauma, having a limb amputated, something no. like that, where you, you notice straight away that limb is missing. Kidneys, you know, you don't really think about them until you need to. You're asymptomatic until you're about 10%. Yeah, so that's a little bit scary. <laughs> but hopefully there's some positives to that, I think medicine has come a long way there are a lot more treatments so for example dialysis we used to not have that and now that's something transplants not saying that everyone will get a transplant but medicine's constantly evolving well the big change i think is prevention because transplant is not a cure it's just another treatment Mm -hmm. and same with dialysis it's just a treatment you're not replacing their kidneys if you put someone on dialysis they end up with a clearance equivalent to an egfr of about 15 to 20 so it's not probably more 15 it's not great treatment so the the shift in focus is really towards prevention so um kidney health australia has done some fantastic work campaigning to get gps to check microalbuminuria and all diabetics check urines uh, anyone with a any sort of proteinuria or microscopic hematuria with a abnormal looking kidney or reduced GFR goes straight to a renal physician for prevention. So a lot of what I do is preventing progression of disease Um, and we have things like ACE inhibitors um, which are one of the mainstays of treatment for preventing progression of kidney disease and microalbuminuria. So a lot of the focus is on avoiding getting to that end stage where you need transplant or dialysis. So prevention is very important and yeah. very cost-efficient. Much better. Quite and I keep them out of the hospitals. Yeah. yeah. At least until we can successfully 3D print people kidneys. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> okay, so now let's clear up some confusion as well. People talk about renal medicine. They talk about nephrology. Are they the same thing? They're the same They're the same thing. thing. So my mum says, what do you do again? I say, I'm a kidney specialist. And some people go, you're a kidney specialist. <laughs> you mean a paediatrician? I go, no, 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 no. I'm a, I'm a renal physician. <laughs> A renal physician. You go, oh, okay. But as soon as you leave Australia, it's nephrology, no. nephrologist. So the current term is I am a nephrologist. Sounds very fancy. <laughs> but we have to be clear that's different from a urologist. It is, yeah. Right. Yeah. The urologists are the surgeons. 
So they, I say urologists because they're not neurologists. <laughs> Quite confusing, like like hyperkalemia and hyperkalemia. Oh, Very easy to exactly. confuse them. Yeah. So the urologists do deal with the urine, <laughs> which comes out of you, which comes out of well, you know, yeah. comes out of. So they look at the whole urinary tract from the urethra up to the bladder, mm. bladder function for men, prostate. Uh, and then up the ureters to the kidney mm -hmm. and any structural problems with the kidney they deal with also so if you've got an obstruction um, if you've got tumor if you've got anything that needs to be resected obviously they do that surgery so um, a whole range of things in urology <laughs> but we work quite closely with them okay yeah right so it's the surgical versus the medical, but you're all people of the kidneys. People of the kidneys. Right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Like children of the corn, but people of the kidneys. <laughs> so can you tell me a bit about the training pathway of being a, a renal physician or a nephrologist or a yeah. kidney lady? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what is that like? Um, well, after medical school, everybody does an internship. After internship, you choose a specialty pathway, so you can go straight to GP land Um you can do a residency in a hospital, so a second hospital year where you are then, I guess, either biding your time to get onto your specialty training program or still deciding. <laughs> and then from there, to do to be a renal physician, you um, become a basic physician trainee. Okay. So you join the college, Royal Australian College of Physicians as a basic physician trainee or BPT or MedReg, just to confuse you. There's lots of names for them. Uh, and that is three years. So if you know that you want to do it and you accredit your residency year, that's counted as your first BPT year. Uh, otherwise, you've got three years. Um, and then year two and three, uh, you're a registrar. So you are a BPT or a medical registrar and you will rotate through the hospital, different medical rotations, like rotating as a resident only, you don't do any surgical or ED or ICU, you just do anything with an ology. So, you know, you can rotate <laughs> through hematology, cardiology, oncology, <laughs> I say respirology, because it fits my... <laughs> Renology. <laughs> Renology, yeah. Oh, come on now, nephrology. Nephrology. <laughs> um, and so you rotate through all of those for two years, and halfway through your second year, you do the big scary written exam. And towards the end of the second, sorry, it's actually the third year, you do the um, big scary clinical exam. And so that's a big year because you're working long hours, lots of weekends, lots of on call, and then going home studying at night. And most people study for about 18 months to pass those two exams. Wow. Okay. 12 to 18, I think 12, 12 months seriously and 18 months just making sure you read stuff as you go along. Okay, wow. And what is life like during those 12 to 18 months? Do you have to cut off all your commitments or can you still do things like go to soccer games and watch movies or whatever it is that people like to do? Oh, coulda, shoulda, woulda. Um, <laughs> I cut off everything because I thought, you know what, it's, a, it's just 18 months. I'll just focus I'll just get through this and I'll just seven days a week I know I'm working six days a week anyway and so what's an extra day a week included in study so I probably worked seven days a week for 18 months solid and I thought I'll just get to the end I'll just get to the end I'll just get to the end and it worked I passed my exam straight through and um, but what I hadn't really factored in was advanced training starts then so you've got three years of advanced training. So once you've done your BPT years, you get into your advanced training subspecialty program, and that's another three years of the same. There's no exams, but you're working long hours. It's quite hard. It's amazing because you get to do nephrology and transplants and ring people and tell them they've got the kidney, and it's an amazing three years. But don't kid yourself. It's a lot of work and a lot of on-call and a lot of hours. So I think cutting everything else in my life down to just work and study for 18 months was a horrendous mistake because because it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. Right. And we've been, you know, I just get through med school, I just get through internship, I just get on to BPT, I just get past those exams, you know, 
15 years later, you you turn around and you go, hang on a minute, I should have kept sailing, I should have kept playing tennis. So um, in retrospect, I should have done it differently. I I should have kept up my tennis and kept up my all my extracurricular, just found a time, just made it happen. Um, the reality is you have to make less time because you have less time. Mm. But if you don't make time for your outside of work and study life, you, you will be much more at risk of burnout, much more at risk of decreased work satisfaction um, and all the other domains that go towards not being a well well person so I would highly recommend continuing everything you already do um, throughout and that's that's really excellent advice and now some people might be deep and they might quote Shakespeare or politicians but I'm going to quote I think it's Ferris Bueller I think he says uh, life goes pretty fast if you blink you might miss it and that seems to be a theme in what you're saying but I do have to say that for you to be able to power through the 12 or 18 months like that I think that shows a great deal of passion certainly I I don't know if everyone could do that unless they had that really strong drive so in your defence I think that shows a great love of kidneys so thank you so what was your secret to, to motivate yourself to getting yourself to stick with it because that's quite a long time I think I was inspired by the physicians in the hospital I wanted to be like them you know they can walk into a well when I was an intern I used to look at them and think they could walk into a room make someone feel better tell them what was wrong with them fix them and then walk out and I just I, I think I found their interpersonal relations with the patients that amazing therapeutic relationship you have with the patients and their incredible knowledge and skills, super inspiring. And I wanted to be like that. Um, And I guess I was very ambitious. Um, I think you have to be reasonably ambitious to do the physician's pathway. Um, I think you have to be extremely ambitious to do surgery because it's much harder. Don't let anyone tell you it's not. (laughs) Um, Just watching my friends and colleagues. But the physician's pathway is pretty hard going still. Um, And so I think you have to be ambitious and um, prepared to put in those hours and be inspired by amazing physicians and have a drive to really want to have your own patients and make a difference for them. So, yeah, but I I just, I I can't emphasize strongly enough how much of a better physician I will be, or I am now that I've readjusted. I was not nearly as good a physician at the end of my training as I could have been because I was burnt out. Um, and I could have avoided that by maintaining everything else to a, to some degree anyway. Yeah, so I think, you know, physician heal thyself. You've got to look after yourself to be a good physician. So part of your ambition and drive should be towards also having a balanced life. Yeah, and in your defence, you're very well-rounded and able to do podcast interviews. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I rebalanced at the end of my training. I went, oh, my goodness. <laughs> All I am is a doctor. And I thought that's what I wanted. I thought we fall into the trap in medical school quite early of defining ourselves as by our careers. Um, it's like men in the 1950s. You know, if they lost their job, they fell into a deep depression because that's all they had. Mm. The wives looked after the children in the house. I keep going back to the 1950s for some reason. Um, if you just talk to med friends and you just focus on medicine and all you talk about on the weekends is medicine and then you work and you study and all you have is medicine and you define yourself as a doctor, you miss out on the rest of life and you don't make nearly as good a physician in the end. So I recommend everybody draws themselves a little pie chart and remembers that this is just a job um, and draw themselves how much of that pie should be taken up with job, how much of that pie of life should be taken up with family or friends or whatever else, hobbies, enjoyment, and remember that pie because if job is only half or less than half, then in five years' time when you're in that training program, just, just compare that to what hours you're doing for each of those pieces of the pie. And if it's 100% job-related, you're going wrong somewhere. <laughs> and if those pieces of pie don't match up, then you won't, you will burn out and you won't be nearly as good at your job at the end. 
think that's excellent advice. Although everyone listening to this probably now has a great desire to eat pie. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that is uh, fantastic advice because you... Life pie, not work pie. <laughs> <laughs> or meat pie. But um, you really told us uh, something, I think, very honest, very real, kind of given us an idea of how inspiring it can be to work in medicine, is to work in medicine, but also to balance that out with the reality of it will take sacrifices. Yeah. yeah. And we often hear those stories about doctors who get to the very, very end of their working life, but they just don't want to retire because that's their identity, and yes. that could actually be to the detriment of patients. Oh, definitely. So it's, yeah. it's important for patients and for yourself to, yeah. to know who you are, Simba, you know, to know who you are besides medicine. And know what you want. Have a hobby. Yeah. yeah. Have a family. Have, a, right. have some friends. <laughs> have some friends. You had it. Keep reading. That's why This is like, wear sunscreen. <laughs> yeah. That too. That's important. Keep reading. Drink water. I don't mean textbooks. <laughs> right. Yeah. Be interesting in the dinner table conversation about politics and the budget. Have watched the budget last night. You know, like and that makes people interested. Don't lose <laughs> that side of yourself that's got other interests. Yeah. I think one of the big things you said there was to in drawing your chart, you're basically mapping out your values and then checking if your actions match your values. I think that's just a great Absolutely. principle for life. Yeah. Check if your if your I don't know, money spending habits match what you think is important, you know? Yeah. If, if you're saying that what matters to you is healthy food and you're just spending all your money on pizza, then something is not quite right. <laughs> you're going wrong somewhere, Simba. That's right. That's right, <laughs> unless it's really healthy pizza. Okay, so, so that's a really excellent overview of the training pathway. Now, what is it like as a consultant? Now, you're, you're through with that training. Yeah. Well, um, I was through with that training at the end end of 2016 and most people then go on to do a PhD so um, it's quite competitive to get a staff specialist job so I use 10 because I can't add up in fractions other than tens <laughs> but let's say there's 10 hospitals in New yeah. South Wales and they each have a renal department and there are 10 renal physicians in each um, department that's 100 jobs in New South Wales now you look at who's filling those jobs, they're in their 40s, 50s and 60s. So New South Wales Health isn't creating any more positions. So you literally have to wait for somebody to retire or die. <laughs> I'm joking. You have to wait for somebody to retire um, before one of those positions comes up. So at the moment, it's reasonably oversubscribed. Um, and people talk about undersubscribed and oversubscribed at the training pathway level. And what they forget is that once you're a consultant, you have the same problem with oversubscribed and undersubscribed. And most of the physician specialties, there are more physicians getting graduated from the college than there are hospital jobs. So that's not necessarily a problem because the patient requirement in the community is huge. There's a growing number of patients with CKD because of metabolic syndrome and hypertension and diabetes, but the reality is there will be a growing number of people with their letters, we call them, when you get your FRACP. Right. Once you've got your letters and you're a boss, um, you will not necessarily be working in a public hospital. And I think that's a bit of a shock to the system because you've just spent 15 years in an institution and you are a bit institutionalised at the end of that, particularly if you've gone straight from high school. So to then suddenly go, hang on a minute, there's no institution for me to slip into, um, is tricky. So you can, I, that, I think a lot of people do a PhD because they don't know what else to do, um, which is not a great plan, or because it will help them be more competitive to get one of those staff specialist jobs when they come up, which is also not a great plan. Um, doing a PhD should be something you do because you really want to contribute to research and you um, want to advance the field and um, contribute to nephrology in that way. Um, but, but the reality is it's so competitive to get the hospital jobs that you almost need to do a PhD to be considered as a staff specialist in, in the Sydney area. Um, so I would say consider renal training to go three years BPT, three years advanced training and three years PhD. And then after that, you will try and get a, a staff specialist job in the hospital. The other way to do it is to go into private practice. Um, 
So you can set up your own private practice and see patients get referrals from GPs and um, work one, two, three, four, five days a week. You start quite slowly with private practice. So, for example, I have start, I have joined a private practice, um, which I never thought I'd do. I'm a, you know, diehard socialist who thought that I'd be doing public medicine forever, but there literally aren't any public medicine right. jobs in hospitals at the moment. Not for someone who's not finished their PhD and got a research portfolio. So is the choice work in a hospital, work in private practice, or live on the street with a cardboard Kind box? of, yeah. Um, or do something else. So I have, I'm part-time Sydney University doing um, an academic medical curriculum development job, which I would have done anyway. Um, it's not a default position. <laughs> I actually have a very long track record of being interested in developing medical education and I find you can do a lot with that. So that's fantastic. But um, there will be people who sort of find themselves a bit of a loose end. So I would advise having some other career interests, not just your nephrology. Um, it'll have to be nephrology plus research or nephrology plus right. some other side career like education or um Working in a circus, I think. Sure, yeah, <laughs> working in the kitchen, kitchen. Sure, yeah. um, So I think that's a bit of a reality check for a lot of people at the end of their training. So I think it's important for medical students and junior doctors to understand that now. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just, as I recently told a group of students, um, happiness is the difference between reality and expectations. So you've got to know what's coming. Um, so for me, this year, I've got part-time Sydney Uni job and the rest of the time I'm building up private practice and but you you're a small business and you start off with no customers so I mean I was lucky I joined a practice and they gave me a whole lot of patients and um, but most people will start off with none and so it takes probably a year to build up one day a week worth of patients um, just because you know you see a patient for half an hour and then you don't see them for three months so um, if you work out how many patients you need to fill one day worth of work recurring, it's quite a lot. Mm. So it does take a long time. So um, again, I love it. It's really nice to come off the back of 10 years of hardcore training and work four days a week. Um, I've got a dog and all my hobbies back. So, <laughs> so it's, and it's temporary. It's only, it'll only be one to three years of not having enough work to fill five days, um, and I'm making full, <laughs> full taking the. Um, what am I trying to say? I'm making the most out of that because yeah. I mean dogs are very needy creatures as very well. Very needy. So. My dog's in my office. I nearly brought him in. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think that's a really nice way to do it. Um, but it just means if you're if you've got three kids by the time you get there and a mortgage, you have to plan to do something else to make up the pay gap. So people go locuming. There's lots of work locuming. It's mainly general medicine locuming. So you can go out to Lismore, Broken Hill, wherever, and be the locum physician for five days. And that pays $2,000 a day. So that's, you know, you can easily make up big chunks of money like that. But again, if you've got a newborn baby and you're breastfeeding, you don't want to be doing that. So you've just you've got to know that, um, you've got to know that you've got to be flexible in those first few years as a consultant around what work you will and won't have and um, plan accordingly, I guess. Yeah. So I suppose it's about figuring out what the reality is, how much you're willing to put up with and what suits you and picking the option that yeah. matches you best. Exactly, yeah. And a lot of people say, but how can you be a renal physician in private practice and not attached to a hospital? Um, because you need a dialysis centre and you need transplant centres and you need biopsies and you need all those things that come with the public hospital um, and that is true so actually what I do is I go to Concord Hospital on Thursdays and I go to the meetings and I participate and I go to the biopsy meetings and they support my um, patients in the community when I need their hospital services so I think that will start happening more and more there'll be more of a hub and spoke model for hospital supporting community physicians so by the time everybody listening gets 
there, this one will probably be well established and possibly by me in nephrology. <laughs> Excellent. Come and work for me. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, and you mentioned in the outpatient setting a lot of it is chronic. So does that mean once you've got your patient base developed, you've sort of got them for life? Yeah. Is it recurring relationships, long term stuff? Yeah, most of them. So I think I've only. In the last 18 months, I've only sent three patients away, and so they didn't need to come back. <laughs> um, yes, once you've got chronic kidney disease, you are at risk, higher risk for progression of kidney disease to end-stage renal failure, ischemic heart disease, all-cause mortality. So we keep a very close eye on people throughout their life and manage their risk factors. So... Short answer is yes, they're mine forever. <laughs> and what's it like working with people that you will meet over and over again and probably get to know quite well? That's the best bit. It's great because the first time you're building up rapport, you're getting to know them. Um, the second or third time, you're asking them how their holiday was or congratulating them on the new grandchild. Or Yeah, no, it's really nice. Yeah, okay. I really love that part of it. So that's a very rewarding Thing to get to know people over time. Yeah, I'm really just at the beginning of that because I've had my patients now for under 18 months, so we'll have to re-interview in 10 years' time and I'll tell you about that. But I, the, the, if you like people, it's nice to know them for a long time. Excellent. So it does sound like a very rewarding specialty. Oh, yeah. But the difficulty is that you start with BPT. So yep. You could go do gastroenterology, cardiology, yep. all of that. How does someone choose yeah. kidneys of all the organs? Yeah. So I chose kidneys because I like general medicine. I like treating patients with lots of different conditions and pulling it all together. Um, so I chose renal because of the general nature of the problems that the renal patients come with. Um I also liked the renal physicians. <laughs> and people talk about finding their people, you know. Mm. You go hang out with a group of respiratory physicians and you think, yep, these are my people. I'm a respiratory physician. <laughs> and I hung out with the renal physicians and they were a sort of quirky bunch who just <laughs> wanted to help their patients. Good. And I thought, yep, these are my people. <laughs> so culture is quite important. Yeah, the social I think so. Story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it, it's funny though because renal in the end will be the le one of the least paid um, physician specialties. Um, again, I didn't go into medicine or training or choose advanced training based on money. It didn't even occur to me. Money didn't occur to me until, or rather it didn't rate a mention until after I finished and I was a consultant. And Nobody likes to talk about money because it seems on the nose and that's not why we're, we're doing this or we would have done a business degree or, you know, artificial intelligence programming or something. Uh, but, hello, you've got to live somewhere and if you live in Sydney, you've got to buy a house or rent or make that decision and guess what? That costs money. And children, if you're going to have them one day, they cost money. <laughs> and dogs. Dogs, <laughs> oh my God. He's a cost centre all on himself. <laughs> oh. So it does factor in. And don't be shy about it. Ask, find out, work out what's enough for you, be happy. Um, and renal medicine pays very badly compared to a lot of the other um, physician specialties. And that is purely because there is no procedure. So you in rooms you see patients fee for service and you charge for the consultation. But if you're a gastroenterologist, you then charge Medicare for the scopes that you do for them. Um, and respiratory physicians have sleep studies that they charge for and bronchoscopies and brain physicians don't charge for anything. <laughs> so it's one of the least paid specialties. I would say oncology would be pretty up there as the least paid physician specialty as well. So anything with a procedure, you'll make more money. So cardiologists who are interventional cardiologists make a lot more money. And so I'm not saying choose your specialty based on what it pays, but be real, factor that into your lifestyle choices. Yeah. 
Okay, so it sounds like they don't pay you to talk, they pay you to do things. That's right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Although talking communication is quite <laughs> important. Now, well, that's just, yeah. the, that's just how the MBS works. Right. And the benefit of scheduled fees is based on procedures more than, yeah, interactions. Mm. And just to be clear, though, the general, I suppose, remuneration of medicine is, yeah. is still rather generous, I suppose, compared yeah. to if you were stacking cans in a supermarket oh, no or something like that. Yeah, yeah. You're not so, going to be poor. Yeah, so I suppose it's all relative then. For example, they've yeah. done those studies where someone can be getting paid a huge amount, but as long as their co-workers are earning a little bit more than them, they feel unhappy. It's just <laughs> that sort of competitive nature. So it's a bit more of the relative sort of thing, just that you've all trained down the same pathway and, and yet there's a discrepancy. Um, hmm. Yeah, that, that might be a good point. I think that people think doctors get paid more than they do as well. Um, so I guess when you're a med student and you're scraping your dollars together to get by, $200,000 a year sounds like you've just won the lottery. Um, if you compare it to most other professions, it's on the lower end. Um, Lawyers, bankers, financiers will all be making more than that. Um, Though, if you do compare it to the state median, which is somewhere oh, in the way realm above of that. 70, oh, yeah, come on, don't so, get me wrong. Doctors are doing just fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all about which end you compare Absolutely. to. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But the but what you're making is mm. approximately $200,000 a year as a staff specialist. Um, if you do interventions on top of that, three, four. Anesthetists, five, six, not sure, not sure, surgeons, you know, up, up. So there is a pretty big difference across the different specialty training pathways. Within physicians, it's a smaller difference. Compared to the general population, it's obviously way more. Um, but you've got to remember that you worked hard for it, you studied hard for it, um, and you, you deserve the remuneration that you get, I think. You deserve to not yeah. live on the street I think so, so don't feel bad. Yeah, don't be guilted into thinking that you, you earn X dollars and therefore you don't have a right to think about it any further. I think, I think that's probably how I thought when I was a medical student. The interesting thing about being a medical student is you look around, you might see all your colleagues all wearing rags or equally impoverished, and then one day, maybe 10, 20 years later, yeah. some of you will be high-flying yeah, surgeons yeah. and yeah. nephrologists and yeah. other things, and you would never predict where life goes. No, that's right. Yeah, it's, so, it's all a matter of perspective, I guess. Yeah. So what's the biggest piece of advice you would give to a medical student? In general? In general. Oh, gosh. Um... Oh, it's going to sound very wear sunscreen kumbaya again, but enjoy it because it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. So if anyone is feeling like they're just getting through med school and they can't wait to be an intern because of, I don't know, no more exams, no more stress, get paid, whatever, whatever the factors are, um, try and shift that mentality and enjoy it while you're there because... It goes, the principle goes for your entire career. So if you're um, not enjoying it as you go, then you will um, enjoy the whole of your career less, I guess. So is it like if someone's waiting just for medical school to end, yes. they think it'll be better as an intern. When they get to be an intern, they'll just be waiting for it to end as an intern and always waiting to the next thing. That's right, yeah. So something about mindfulness and living in the moment yeah. is probably appropriate here. <laughs> I mean, there is a quote somewhere I, I feel this quote probably exists um if happiness is not here now what makes you think it's going to come later so if you're not feeling the moment now that something is is wrong with it now you know it's, that's right. it's not about oh when i get more money i'm going to be happier you might yeah. just be the same miserable person with a bigger wallet so. or when i have no more exams for a couple of years right. or when i am actually a doctor and my family takes me seriously or whatever it is right. that's driving you Except as humans, we will always find something to complain about, like the hedonic treadmill. You think you'll be happy earning more money, but when you get there, you'll just adjust and soon you'll just want more money. So I suppose something about mindfulness and gratitude is probably yeah. appropriate here. 
Though that said, humans like to complain and all of that sort of stuff. <laughs> Hours is one of the people's biggest concerns. So, Hours. yeah, so um, as a nephrologist, is there a lot of on call or working in private practice is just nine to five? No worries. I do no on call. I do nine to five, you know, two days a week. Sounds and good. And I do nine to four, another three days a week probably, or if I'm, when I'm spanning that to five days a week. Uh, so no, my hours are spectacularly good and well adjusted and there's no on call, but I'm in the minority. If you're working in a public hospital, um, you are obviously on call. So it just depends on the local health district and the demands of the services, but it's um, around here you'll do one whole month on and you might do two of those a year if you're the boss um, but that's you know one whole month on <laughs> every weekend every night on the phone and is it a lot of on call for example will you be asked to rush into the middle of the night to do some kind of as procedure? a boss as a boss Suddenly no, 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 no not as a boss not in nephrology. Other specialties maybe, but definitely not nephrology. No, I don't, can't remember a boss that's gone in at night time. Emergency history. No, or something. no, 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 no. Because the registrars do that. So okay. if you're talking on call registrar, yeah. it's a huge amount of on call on weekends. Okay. Um, as a consultant, no. not It's not that bad. Um, but having said that, the month you're on, people look pretty exhausted by the end of that. Some hospitals will do two weeks on... Um, Two weeks off, oh, sorry, two weeks on and then eight weeks off, two weeks on, eight weeks off. But So, yeah, there's always going to be some on-call and weekends working in the public hospital system. Um, people manage that. Some manage it better than others, I think. Some, if you're an early riser, they get up, they get their ward round done by midday and they're out of there and they, they go to lunch and then take a few phone calls and don't worry about it. But... Other people, every phone call stresses them out, and yeah, I think you might be looking for a specialty without so much on call if that's you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think we've covered so much ground here. We've talked about hours, we've talked about money, we've talked about living in Sydney and the cost of having a dog. We've covered everything that people really care about. So, my final question before we wrap up is if someone's interested in renal medicine, yeah. what should they do? Um, let's say a junior doctor or a medical student what sorts of things should they try or should they just keep going along and just let life fall into place as a medical student your best bet is to just keep learning about everything um, because you'll need a broad base of knowledge to do nephrology uh, as a junior doctor start telling the renal departments you want to do renal if you know you want to do it um, start telling them because that will help you in the long run. Start telling the BPT unit you want to do BPT. So the first hurdle is obviously getting on to basic physicians training and not everybody does straight away. I think most still do, but not everybody. Uh, so start talking to the basic physician units and saying what are their requirements to get on and you'll find it's been well-rounded. So have an interest in teaching, have an interest in research, have an interest in quality assurance activities, etc. So um, getting things on your CV like I've done a case report or I've presented a poster or I've attended an M&M &M meeting and done a quality assurance thing to do with that. Start building up different aspects of your CV. But the... BPT units around the place will have a slightly different take on what they want. So talking to the directors of physician training early is really helpful. Getting yourself on their radar, building up your CV in the way that they want you to, um, to get onto the physician training program. And then really you don't have to worry about getting onto advanced training programs in any specialty until you've gone onto BPT and started down that path. And, got past the exam hurdle really so don't worry too much keep keep going with your general education I think okay and with the BPT do they care much about say personality social side or is it a list of qualifications and things that will get you points oh definitely both uh, being a physician requires good communication skills empathy a certain level of maturity which 
we all evolve <laughs> over time. Um, and it's an interview process, so you will get your CV and application through the door based on points and not points so much as the surgeons have points, but based on what's on your CV. Um, and then you will need to interview. And so it's about can you answer a question sensibly? Do you have common sense? If some disaster arises, are you going to approach it in a systematic, logical way? Ask for help when required. So, so definitely both. Okay. What about marks? At any point, does anyone look at your marks, for example, from medical school? Or is oh, that, that's a hard question for me to answer because when I did it, no. Um, I was a graduate of the Sydney Medical Program, which was the graduate medical program back then, GMP, uh, and it was essentially pass or fail. I understand now you can get a mark at the end of school which can be requested for applying to certain universe, uh, sorry, certain overseas training programs. I don't currently know if BBT units look at your university marks, but I would be very surprised if they did. Okay, so those are the things that people generally care about, marks. Do you need to be a people person to get on? What sorts of research and that sort of qualification do you need? And I think you've answered these sorts of concerns quite well. In fact, you've given us a really amazing overview of renal medicine and your experience in it and given some really, really good and deep life advice, I think. Thank you. Yeah, so good luck. Thank you so much for your time. It's, no it's a shame you didn't bring your dog. That's oh, the only flaw I have with this. Yeah, you'd have been running around causing chaos and chewing on your microphone, so you might be grateful he's not here. <laughs> but in response to something you said much earlier, you said you felt really inspired when some of your role models walked through the door. So if it makes you feel yeah. better... The room instantly became happier when you walked through the door. The oh, only thing that was unhappy so nice. was when you actually turned the TV on and it was quite freaky. Ah, <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> but other than that, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Lucy. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And we look forward to seeing all our listeners on the next episode. <laughs>